Good morning. Good morning. Uh, we are in a series called Stranger Beliefs to look at beliefs that, um, that people in the world find, uh, and even us find difficult, if not impossible, uh, to, to get their minds around and to process. And last week we looked at the fact that God uh, created the world. This week we're going to look at the, the idea that God judges the world, that every human being is an object of the wrath of God. Now, uh, even just saying that, I know that people outside the church, but even those of us in, inside the church, uh, struggle with this. At some point or another, uh, we've all struggled with this idea that, that God will judge us, uh, that somehow God is mad at us. So how could a good God be mad? I mean, how could anybody be mad at me? I mean, how is that even possible? But certainly, how could a good God uh, have this wrath? It all feels so random. You know, the, these people over here uh, go to heaven. These people over here go to hell. And, you know, not literally, but you get the idea. And so, um, you know, he loves me. He loves me not. Like, where's this guy coming from? And it just all feels so uh, random. But I want to take a, a, a deeper look um, this morning at God's wrath because it is the backdrop. It is the backdrop of the most beautiful aspect of Christianity, but to get there, we have to go on a journey. We have to take a walk through some things. So, to do that, I want to look at God's wrath under uh, three headings. Um, the wrath of God is warranted, uh, it's controlled, and then finally, it, it's absorbed. So, the, the, the first one I want to look at is that God's wrath is warranted. Like, He, it, it's actually okay that He's this feels this way. Um, so, look at verse three uh, once again. Um, can we show that verse? It says, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers of the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, the range of people here is fascinating. Um, you, you've got different races. You've got Jew and Gentile. Um, you've got uh, different uh, kind of socioeconomic backgrounds. You've got the blue-collar and the cultural elite. You've got you know, the Roman soldiers or blue-collar guys mac and cheese, you know, Bud Light, and then you've got Pharisees who were the cultural elite, a little more highbrow, and then you had religious and irreligious. You have people who, who loved the Bible, who, who, who uh, were Bible believers, and then you had these people who could really care less about anything religious, and everybody was in on this. Everybody had come to attack Jesus, and that's really the main point. That when we read here in this beginning passage, that when they came with their torches, their chains, their weapons, their, their, their lanterns, um, later we'll find out that Jesus will be mocked, he'll be beaten, he'll be murdered. This is narratively portraying what the Bible teaches propositionally, this fact, that we don't just not believe in God, that we actually hate him. Romans 5.10 says this, this is a propositional truth, that while we were enemies, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to, get, to God by the death of his son. That we were enemies. Not just, yeah, I'm not really sure what I believe, but we were actually enemies. Romans 8.7 kind of says it even a little more starkly. It says, for the mind that is set on the flesh, it is just the mind in its natural state, the mind is in its natural state is hostile or angry to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 
said, so it's, it's saying that we have this hostility, we have this enmity, we have this hatred of God. So when the chains and the torches and the clubs and the swords are depicting narrowly what the, what the Bible teaches about what our mindset is toward God, it's not just that we just simply don't believe in him, is that we actually hate him. That every human being, until the Holy Spirit comes in and does a work in their heart, in their life, that we are mad at God, that we are hostile toward God, and we hate him. Now, I know what many of you are thinking. Um, you're thinking, man, I can't relate to that. Like, you know, I, I get that maybe some people may feel that way, but... Uh, you know, I know, I'm, I know I don't have the faith that I should. I know that I don't believe as I should. I don't, I, um, you know, I, 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 but I don't even really know who God is. I don't really, how, I don't know if I even really believe. How could you say that I, but I hate him. But here's what we know about the human heart. Uh, here's what we know about the human heart. That we, the human heart hates anything that would threaten its self-sovereignty. The human heart hates anything that would threaten its self-sovereignty, our mastery of our own life. More than anything, our hearts want to be our own masters, our own lords. And anything that threatens this self-sovereignty triggers anger in us. Uh, St. Augustine was an early church uh, father, um, and uh, he, he had this radical change in his life, and he, w- he had this truth in mind uh, one time when he recounted this, this time when he stole pears uh, from his neighbor's um, trees. And uh, he's reflecting on why he did. He's like, why did, I, why did I steal those pears? He goes, especially in the fact that I wasn't even hungry. And then he's like, I don't even like pears. So why, why did I steal the pears? Why do you, if you don't like pears and you're not even hungry, why do you steal the pears? And as he reflected, he says, I know the answer. It's because I was told not to get them. They were forbidden. In other words, the prohibition against prayers, or excuse me, against pears, triggered that part of your heart that says, nobody tells me what to do. I'm the master of my own fate. I'm the captain of my own soul. Now, here's a question for you. If pears trigger that kind of response, what do you think Jesus Christ does? See, when you read the gospel accounts, now I know that, you know, in, in, in the West, the way Christianity is and churches, it all just kind of gets convoluted, but when you look at the real life of Jesus and how people actually responded to him, one of the things that's fascinating is that nobody, nobody, nobody ever responded to him moderately. Nobody responded to him. Anytime he's done teaching or ministering, nobody said, hmm, that's interesting. Let me just think about that for a minute. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's an interesting, fascinating, no one ever responded that way. They are either furious at him and attacked him, or their eyes were open and they did the most dramatic thing a human being can do, and that is they surrendered to him. They either attacked him or they surrendered to him. There was no moderate response. And the reason is that Jesus, more than any human being, more than anything, triggers the hatred that we have for anything that, se- that, that seeks to threaten our self-sovereignty. Because he makes major claims. He says, I am the Lord. I am the judge. Nobody can follow me unless they leave everything. They, they, unless, they, unless they hate their mother and their father. In fact, even if they, they must hate their own life. They, they must be willing to lay down and give their entire life. Or they cannot. It doesn't say they won't be a very good disciple. There's not like two, like, hey, if you, if you don't lay down your life, you know, you're, you're just going to be kind of this like middle of the road disciple. 
It's like if you don't lay down your life, you cannot be my. He makes this, this major claim on your life, and people either attacked him or they did the most dramatic thing you could do, and that is they surrendered to him. If you want true life, he says, I need to be number one. I tell you how you should live. You, you, don't, you don't say how you live. I say how you live, and that triggers the hate. So the Bible says that we're not just indifferent toward God. We hate him. And one of the ways that you can, that actually that you can discover that you really do hate the God of the Bible is that we begin, um, both as, as, as people who aren't Christians and even people who are Christians, here's what we do because we hate the real God, is that we begin to formulate a picture of God that we can control, that we can arrest, that we can put in chains and take him where we want to take him. We hate the God of the Bible because we can't master him. We can't control him, so we create this God in our mind. So I believe in a God. The God I believe in is a God of love, and your, your, your theology, that is your thoughts of God, either consciously or unconsciously, is that God is happy when I am happy. God is happy when I am happy. And doing um, research on this series, I've spent, I spent a lot of time researching what, what atheists think of of, of Christianity, and I watched and listened to a lot of debates, and one debate was a few decades ago of the late Madeline um, Murray O'Hare, and she was debating this host, uh, David Frost, about the existence of God, and to be honest with you, she was winning. Um, uh, she, she, she's a very sharp lady, and she was winning uh, this debate, and in a moment of desperation, the host, David Frost, looked at the crowd and said, well, you all believe in God, don't you? And the crowd's like, yes, we believe in God. And, you know, he looks at her like, yeah, I see, you know, I proved my point. And she just didn't say a word, which she totally blew her opportunity. I mean, if I was her debate coach, um, I would have told her, you know, so he says, hey, do you believe in God? And everyone's like, yeah, this is what you should have said. You should have said, do you believe in a God who says, according to your Bible, I will have mercy upon whom I have mercy? Do you believe in a God who is the potter and you are the clay, that you don't determine you, that I determine you, who, who puts his presence in the Ark of the Covenant, and whoever touches that Ark will die? The God who said to Job, I know that you've gone through tremendous suffering, but I'm not even going to tell you why you went through all of that. You're just going to have to trust me. Now, how many believe in that God? She would have won the debate. Because we hate that God. The fact is, we create a God, a, a picture of God that we can arrest, proves that we hate the real one. That's what religion is. Religion is this, this thing to try to control who God is. How many, you guys remember the, the movie Amadeus? Of course you don't. You're not old enough. And so we uh, came out in the mid-'80s. So but you probably hopefully know who Mozart was. And uh, this is a, the, Amadeus is this fictional portrayal of the, this relationship for these two guys, Mozart and Salieri. Salieri. Uh, and um, this guy, Salieri, he said he was this very pious guy, and Mozart's predicted as this, like, just totally insane, out of control, 
immoral person. And this guy comes, and this guy, Salary, comes to God and says, God, I, I, wanna, I, want, I want you to make great music come through me. And in exchange, I'll give you my chastity, and I'll give money to the poor. I'll be a very, very good person. So his prayer was, God, make me the best musician. And I, in exchange, I will be a good person. I will give money to the poor, and I, will, and, and, and I will stay away from sexual immorality. And he did that. He was a good person, and he gave to the poor. And, but eventually, he realized the gift that he had worked so hard for had been given to Mozart, a man of inferior moral attainments, of inferior moral condition. And when Salieri realized this, it, it, it's so dramatic in the movie that he sees, it shows him looking at this crucifix on the wall. Salieri looks at this crucifix on the wall and he says, from now on, you and I are enemies. And he takes that crucifix and he throws it in the fire. Now, the reality is, him and God were always enemies. He never was talking to the real God. He was talking to this religious made-up God. And we do this all the time. We, we, we get infuriated with the idea that God is not under our control, that God is not under our rest, that God is not someone that we can take off in chains, that somehow we can manipulate him with good behavior. Like somehow we have something that we can barter with him in exchange for what he would do for us. We say, I love God, and what did it get me? It didn't get me anything. It's not the biblical God. It's a God that you're trying to control with your good works. The truth is we don't want a God of grace. We don't want a God who gives mercy to ever whom he decides to give mercy. And it's just that we don't believe in him. It's we are mad at him. And I think about even sometimes in my prayer life. I mean, just to be honest here, like there are moments in my prayer life where I'm just like, man, it's just... It's buzzing and it's warm and it's, it's great, it's rich and it's, it's, it's full. And then a few days go by and, and I can, I can, I can ex experience even ingratitude in my own life. Uh, a sense of entitlement that I deserve certain things. And, and that's even my own heart trying to control who God is and who he isn't. Because there's something in all of us, there's something in all of us that wants to control who God is. And here's my point. You're never going to make much sense of your life, much less God, until you understand that we are the ones, that we are the ones who are characterized by wrath, that we drew first blood, that we're the ones who are coming after God with chains and swords. And if you ever need any proof that the human heart is set toward hostility toward God in the brief period of time when the God of the universe became vulnerable. We killed him. We had, when we had the opportunity to get close to him, we didn't worship him. We killed him, and we all did that. We were all there, every race, every background, every person. Martin Luther says, we all walk around with his nails in our pockets. So God's wrath is warranted, but it's controlled. Just before you move on too quickly here, it's a, it's a controlled 
wrath. It's not a fly off the hand. It's a control. Let me tell you what I'm talking about in, in John 18, 4 and 5. Then Jesus, knowing that all would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Now, in your English translation, our English translation adds the he just to kind of smooth out the language so it's not awkward. But in the Greek, it actually just says, I am. I am. And if you'll remember in, in Exodus 3 when Moses encountered God in the burning bush, Moses says, hey, when I go to Egypt and I say to the most powerful man, hey, you need to let your free labor go, what do I say? He says, tell him I am sent you. And then later on, Jesus in, in John 8 uh, said something very simply. He said to the crowds, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Am And he does the same thing here in the garden. But when he does it this time, something strange happens. When he walks forward and says, I am, they all fall to the ground. Their knees buckle. Even the Roman soldiers, these battle-tested uh, brute of men, these guys were not afraid of some Jewish carpenter turned rabbi. But yet, when he said, I am, they fell to the ground. Why did they fall to the ground? Commentators say that for a brief moment, a ray of glory slipped out. Veiled in the flesh is Jesus. Veiled in the flesh, the Godhead. The glory, the majesty of God hidden in a human flesh. But for one second, in order for them to see, in order for the disciples to see, in order for you and I to see, Here's a God of infinite power holding it back. I mean, he tells Peter, put away the sword. This is not how this is going to go down. This is unjust, what's happening to me. There is wrath coming, but it's not going to come the way you think it's going to come. Later, Jesus would tell Pilate, I could, with a snap of the fingers, bring 12 legions of angels Earlier in John 10, he declared, no one takes my life, I lay it down. What are you doing, Jesus? This is your opportunity. I mean, they're bullying you. They're getting ready to kill you. Attack! What do you think God should have done? What do you think Jesus should have done? Here comes people, soldiers, lanterns, swords. They're going to beat him. They're going to kill him, coming with anger and unjust wrath. This is God's opportunity to show them who's boss. Remember later, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark? That's another movie that's older than you. Um, it's not even on Netflix. I know. It's, you actually have to pay for it. Um, the Raiders find the Ark. They open it up, and God just zaps them. I mean, like electricity, this is like a cartoon character, electricity comes, I mean, a couple of them melt. I mean, this is why, you know, I wasn't supposed to watch it. I mean, but that's the God we know, the God of wrath, the guy who smites anyone he shall smiteth. You don't mess with God. Richard Dawkins says this about God. Now, I got to stretch my mind and... God is a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously 
malevolent bully. If God is that bloodthirsty, that petty, that malevolent, why not open a can right here, right now? God has warranted wrath, but you have to see that it is controlled wrath. God's wrath has always been under control. We, we, we get very skittish, very um, offended that God could ever be justifiable, angry at us. But we have to remember, we have to remember that, that the, 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 uh, the Bible's uh, language about God is, is analogous. It's, 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 not in, it's partial. So when it says God is a shepherd... I don't mean to burst your bubble. Well, like when we go to, I don't expect to see God with a staff and a bunch of sheep around him. Like God isn't literally a shepherd, but it's it's trying to communicate language to show the, how God's relationship is with with us. You know, God as a shepherd is to sheep. You know, so is God to us. It's it's analogous. He said God is a father. He's not like a human father in every way, but there there are aspects to which God is a a father. So we have to be careful when we say that God is, is angry. He is angry, but we have to be careful about how we say he's angry because we're not saying that God is angry like we get angry. Uh, when we get angry, it's, it's ego, it's, it's crankiness, it's regretful, it's a loss of control. Uh, people get offended by this idea that God is angry because we are over-prescribing how we get angry with how God gets angry. So when we talk about God's wrath... Here's how I how would say it. This is God's wrath. Here's a good definition. It is settled opposition toward evil. It's settled opposition toward evil. It's not reactionary. It's not tempered. It's a settled opposition, a decided opposition, a controlled opposition toward evil and injustice. And if the truth be told, we want that God. I mean, if, there's, if he has no power to take care of what we would consider evil and unjust, we want that God. We want him to get rid of evil. We want him to get rid of the injustice. If God is so angry at evil, though, then why does it still exist? Well, here's why, quite frankly. I'll cut to the chase. Because if, if he simply got rid of all the evil in the world, he'd have to get rid of you and I. And if you don't believe that, you, are, you, you have yet to be honest with your heart, and you don't know what you're capable of. He did that once with the flood, and he promised to do that that way ever again. Well, how's it going to happen again? How, how's, he, how's he actually going to activate and get rid of the, how's this going to work? He's got a problem. We've got a problem, actually. He doesn't have it. We do. He gets to solve it. Well, here's the third point is that the wrath of God is absorbed. In John 18, in that moment in the history of the world that we're reading about, is this is the moment in history, the night before, the wrath of God will be absorbed. And it's absorbed in the most shocking way. I already said, Jesus told Peter, put away the sword. This is not how it's going to happen. The wrath of God is not going to be absorbed in these men. Well, why not, Jesus? Well, he tells us in John 18. Sorry, John 18, 11. Can we have the verse before? It's not there, but it's up there. Okay. Uh, but so G, uh, Jesus said to Peter, 
put your sword away. And then he says this, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So he says, this is, it's not going to be absorbed in these men. It's going to be absorbed in me. They're not going to drink the cup. I'm going to drink the cup. I'm going to do this. And this little verse creates a phrase that combines the two ideas that we don't think can ever, 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 ever be combined. And yet they are combined. And it's the wonderful secret of what happened on the cross. See, in this, in this context, cup means wrath. In ancient times, criminals were often executed by um, drinking a cup of poison. That's how they killed Socrates. And that's why when you read in the Old Testament, that God's judicial settled opposition toward evil and injustice is depicted as a cup. In Ezekiel 23, the prophet declares, you shall drink the cup of his wrath. And it says, you will tear your breast because inside of you will be this burning that you'll, you just can't handle. You'll want, it's just a very dramatic scene. And then uh, Isaiah 51 uh, says that you will drink the cup of his wrath and you will stagger. It's just very horrendous picture of what God's wrath is like, the cup of God's wrath is like. But notice that this cup mentioned in verse 11 is not just any cup. It says it's the cup of the Father. And, and that's where it, it gets messed up for us. This isn't some distant, um, non-relational force. This is the cup of the Father. This is the cup of whom Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. This is the, the, the one that he spent time, that he comes from. He's, he's his son. He's well pleased with his son. There's God said from heaven at his baptism. This is, this is a loving relationship. And we have a hard time putting this idea of love and wrath together. A father can't simultaneously have that kind of love and have that kind of wrath. If he's loving, there should be no cup. And if there's a cup, he's not loving. But Jesus knows it's not true. He knows that God, for God to express ultimate love, he must drink the ultimate cup by going to the cross. And if you don't understand that, your life can't be changed. Here's what I mean. Many people say, I don't believe in a God of judgment. I don't believe in a God who sends people to hell. I don't believe in a God whose wrath is on all of us. He just loves people. Well, if that's true, why did Jesus die on the cross? Many will say, well, the death of Jesus, even Gandhi says this, the death of Jesus is an inspiring example of love and sacrifice. Is that all it is? Just an inspiring example of love and sacrifice? Imagine a friend, imagine this. Uh, uh, you and a friend were standing side by side at a bonfire. And a friend um, looks at you and says, let me demonstrate my love for you. And he just jumps into the fire and dies. You, would you say, behold, how he's loved me? Like you wouldn't, you'd say, man, what was he smoking? Like what in the world? He just jumped into a fire. But what if you're standing by a burning house, instead of a burning house, and your child's in that house? And he says to you, let me show you how much I love you. And he goes in, and he saves your child. And in the process, his life is lost. Then you would say, oh, how he loved me. 
If Jesus Christ dies on the cross and we're not any, in any kind of trouble, if it's just some example, if there is no wrath of God, then the death of Jesus is not an act of love. It's an act of lunacy. But if Jesus is doing on the cross what he said he was doing on the cross, drinking the cup of wrath, he's doing what Caiaphas prophesied about, even though he didn't know he was prophesying about it, when he said it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. You know, he was just saying, we just need to squash this one man so we can save ourselves. That's actually what he was saying when he said that man, that man should die so that we should live. But what he was doing, he was pointing to the work of the, cro the cross and what theologians call substitutionary atonement, which simply means that Jesus Christ stepped into our place. He drank the cup that we should have drank, paying the price that we should pay. The cross shows us that how he can have both a settled opposition toward evil, be absolutely just and absolutely loving at the same time. And here's the irony. It's only when you see the depth of his wrath that you'll see the depth of his love. You will only see the, the depth of his love if you are willing to see the depth of his wrath. If you have a, a small view of the wrath of God, you have a small view of the love of God. It's only when you see the pain and evil your own sin causes that you will ever see a grace that is so amazing. What does this mean for our lives? Here's what it means. It means that you can finally be relieved of your guilt. It means that you can finally be relieved of your shame. It means that you can live in eternal peace and security knowing that Jesus had drunk the cup of wrath and he drank every single bit. You were so, you and I were so bad that Jesus had to die for us, but he's so loving that he was glad to do it. It means that you now can finally forgive, that you can go off in forgiveness. I read an unbelievable quote this week by a woman, a sexual abuse survivor of, of Larry Nassar that we've all been reading about. She said this, should you ever reach the point of truly face, this is what he said to, this is what she said to Larry. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you've done, the guilt will be crushing. And that's what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because there is grace where none should be found, and it will be there for you. Where do you get the power to forgive like that? Here's a woman who understands the depth that God's wrath is warranted yet controlled. And it's not just pointed at Larry. It was pointed at her. The reason why she can say that is because she has experienced it. She knows that Christ absorbed it for her and will absorb it for him. But in the meantime, it gives her the power to forgive even a man like that. It also means that we can get our, our eyes off our own lives and get to the busy and important and urgent work of seeing evil expediated from our lives. And it only happens as we pray the kingdom of God to come on earth just as it is in heaven. Only God has the power to get rid of evil. We, we can wish and hope and there's some things we can do practically, but at the end of the day, God is, is the only one who can do it. And I'm going to quote Richard Dawkins one more time. Um, and this is one that we should hear. Don't ask God to cure cancer and world poverty. He's too busy finding you a parking space and fixing the weather for your barbecue. 
See, when he looks on Christians, he sees, well, what is God for? And we say things like, man, I had such a tough day yesterday, and I was so I was late for my appointment already, and the parking lot was full, but oh my gosh, I pulled up, and there was a parking, parking space right in front just for me. It was God. Really? That's like the central work of God in your life? Got to pray that it doesn't rain today, so I can have fun today. Come on. God is about getting, he, he is, has a settled opposition toward wrath. Do you have a settled opposition? The more you get closer to Jesus, the more you realize his justice, the more you realize his power and his love to forgive and to bring peace and joy to all men, to all women. And we get to be we get to be co-laborers with him and we can pray down. That's why we have things like the week of prayer where we can just pray down the kingdom of heaven on earth. Or is your life, dear Christian, about barbecues and convenience? Let us wake up to the reality of the wrath of God. Let us wake up to the reality of the love of God and the power of God. Why don't we stand?